0: Well, in this eighth chapter of John's Gospel, uh, we still find Jesus teaching at the Feast of Tabernacles. And we began to think about that feast last week, where everyone for a week camped in tents to remember when the Israelites lived in tents for 40 years in the wilderness. They remembered how God sustained their forefathers, how He Himself. Tabernacled among them and was with them. But it not only remembered those events in the wilderness, but all these events that took place at the Feast of Tabernacles were intended to create a sort of messianic expectation, to cause them to long for and look for the coming Messiah. And we thought last week about the the two activities that made this feast especially fun. Uh, last week, we thought about that water-pouring ceremony that took place in the morning. And that set the background for Jesus' words in chapter 7, when he cried out to anyone who was thirsty to come to him and drink. So there was that water-pouring ceremony in In the morning, that made it especially enjoyable. But then in the evenings, there was this amazing lamp lighting ceremony. And what we find in chapter 8 is it's still the last day, the great day of this feast. It was on this morning that Jesus had cried out to those who were thirsty to come to him and drink. And now, In chapter 8, he uses the backdrop of this great lamp-lighting ceremony to say, I am the light of the world. I think it's maybe hard for us to comprehend how amazing uh, this lamp-lighting ceremony was. It took place in what was called the Court of Women. And the court of women contained the temple treasury. Thus, John makes the note in verse 20, these words he spoke in the treasury. This great lamp-lighting ceremony served as the background for the second of Jesus' I am sayings. I am the light of the world. For this ceremony in this court of the women, there were these four poles that were set up and they were estimated to be about 75 feet high. And on the top of these poles were giant bowls of oil. So there were four of these. And every evening they were lit and they would literally light up the city of Jerusalem. If you've ever been out in in the wilderness, you realize how bright the stars shine when there's no other light around. Imagine what this would have been like in a time before electricity to have these giant lamps lit and they would reflect off the sort of yellow limestone of the temple and it would create this amazing glow. It's probably the ancient equivalent to fireworks. It was exciting. It was amazing. And in addition to these four huge poles, these four huge lights, there was a great central light. And on the last day of the feast, that great central light remained unlit. That water-pouring ceremony had a similar feature to it where the priest would pour the water and everyone would be silent and there would be that moment where the people recognized the Messiah had not yet come. And while that central light remained unlit, here comes Jesus and says, I am the light of the world. You see, these lamps pointed back to Israel's redemption From Egypt, and specifically, it remembered that pillar of fire and cloud by which the Lord led his people. And like the other aspects of this feast, this lamp lighting ceremony was to cause the people to desire the Messiah. It didn't just look back to the wilderness, but it looked forward to the coming Messiah who would. Come as the light of the world and bring salvation. And I pointed out last week how water was so often in the Old Testament, the pouring out of water was so often associated with the coming of the Messiah and the giving of the Holy Spirit. And we find that just as water was sort of synonymous with salvation, so light in the Old Testament is almost synonymous with salvation. We sang Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. And so what we need to understand is just as he did in in chapter 7, using Old Testament sign language, Jesus is declaring himself to be the Son of God, the long-awaited Messiah the great light who would bring salvation. And it's striking that in this chapter, three times, Jesus uses that Old Testament divine name of God, I am for himself. Verse 12, he says, I am the light of the world. Verse 24 in the Greek reads, Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Verse 58: Before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is declaring himself to be no less than the Lord God. He's claiming to be the only way to god and he is offering light and salvation to those who will trust in him and as jesus enters into this lengthy discussion and conflict with the leaders and the people he exposes the fact that they were separated from god he underlines it in many ways Uh, Throughout the chapter in verse 19, he says, If you knew me, you would know my father. Verse 47, you are not of God. Verse 55, you have not known him. Friends, when Adam and Eve, our first parents, sinned, there was a profound and far reaching separation that took place. They were separated from God, and this is our problem apart from Jesus Christ. We are separated, alienated from our Heavenly Father, and even worse than that, we are sons and daughters of another Father. He says it in verse 44, you are of your father, the devil. And here again, we are reminded that when it comes to Christ, there is no such thing as neutrality. You are either for him or you are against him. You are either of your father in heaven through Jesus Christ or you are of your father, the devil. Through Adam. And in this chapter, Jesus, in different ways, brings out how these people were separated from God. And yet, in doing so, he presents himself as the wonderful remedy for that separation. And what we find throughout this chapter is really four expressions of this separation from God and how Jesus is the remedy for this separation. Mm -hmm. We see first... Excuse me. Mm -hmm. My kids have been... sick all week, and I thought I got out unscathed. I'm hoping that that's the case. Okay. The first expression of this separation that we see is that of spiritual darkness. Apart from Christ, we are separated from God, and we walk In darkness. And that's the implication of his famous words in verse 12 I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He's talking about spiritual darkness. He's talking about what that separation from God looks like. It is spiritual darkness. In the Bible, light and darkness have deep meaning. But Jesus' words here in verse 12, when he says, I am the light of the world, they have a very specific focus. They're a reference to that pillar of fire in the wilderness. That's what those lamps uh, pointed back to. And again, he is making a clear claim to be God we read from exodus 13:21 and i wonder if you caught there that we learn that god didn't just send the pillar of cloud and fire but he was the cl- cloud of pillar and fire uh, listen to what that verse says and the lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them and at night by a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night, you see the pillar of fire is what theologians call a theophany, a pre incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ and when God appeared in that pillar of fire, what was his purpose to show the people the way? To lead them into the promised rest of Canaan. They wouldn't have known the way. They wouldn't have been able to make it on their own. And that's very significant when we remember that the land of Canaan was a type and a shadow of our heavenly rest. And so Jesus is saying that, as the light, I am the only way to God. I am the only way to the promised rest of heaven. He's saying here what he would later say in the upper room when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He's saying, I am the way to God. Follow me. I am the one who removes that separation. The one who brings you out of darkness into the glorious light. And again, we should ask, how does he do that? Well, he brings us into his light by entering into the darkness himself. It was during His time on the cross when He was separated from the Father that darkness covered the face of the earth. It was because Jesus went in to the deepest darkness for us that we may walk in His glorious light. But the second expression of this separation from God that we see is spiritual death. Spiritual death. Twice Jesus says to these obstinate leaders that without them, without him, they will die in their sins. And the reason for that was that they were already dead spiritually. This is how the Bible describes us, apart from Christ, as dead people. We are told that without Christ, we are dead in our trespasses and our sins. Yes, we might have physical life, but apart from Jesus, we were dead. And if we had to sum up the results of the fall in one word, it would be this word, death. We might ask then, what is death? Because in Genesis two seventeen, when God gave the penalty for disobedience, he said that the day that they ate of that forbidden tree, the day that they ate of it, they would surely die. We read on in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve clearly did not drop dead. When they ate of the tree, they went on to live long lives. And that tells us that clearly death is something more than physical death. The essence of death is separation from God. There is a separation that happened in the garden in Eden. It's profound. It's far-reaching. Death is not annihilation. It's not passing into nothingness. It's separation from God. And that is why dying in our sins is so terrible. To die in one's sins is to pass into eternal separation from the gracious presence of God. But even as Jesus highlights This profound and tragic reality of spiritual death. He is pointing to himself as the remedy. Look at verse 28. He makes a reference to his death on the cross. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. See, the remedy for this spiritual death is nothing less than the death of the Son of Man for us. It was on the cross as Jesus became our substitute that He endured that separation from His Father as He bore God's wrath for our sins. That is what is required for us to be reconciled to God. Jesus was forsaken for us, separated for us. More than that was necessary to have this spiritual death reversed, for us to have salvation. Jesus had to die for our sins, and theologians often call this the Passive obedience of Christ. The passive obedience, his submitting himself to the cursed death of the cross for us. But Jesus did more than that to reconcile us to God because as our substitute, he also obeyed the Father perfectly in our place. You see, he both paid the penalty for our breaking of the law But positively or actively, he upheld the law, giving it full obedience. Uh, This is often called Jesus' active obedience, his obedience to the law. And friends, we need both of these to be reconciled to God. Jesus alludes to this Active obedience often throughout John's gospel. We see it in verse 29 when he says, For I always do the things that are pleasing to the Father. Friends, without an obedient Christ, we could never have been saved. So, spiritual death that is Reversed by the work of Jesus. But thirdly, we see this separation expressed in the terms of spiritual slavery. Look at verses 31 and following. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Jesus says, Without me, you are slaves to sin. And the word here. Um, I forget how it's translated in the ESV, but the idea is practice, is whoever practices sin, um, the the Greek implies an unbroken, unrepentant pattern of sin. Even as Christians, we, we all sin. But what Jesus is saying is that unrepentant sin, a continuing obstinate pattern of sin, shows that you are slaves to sin. Look at his statement in verses 35 and 36. He says the slave does not remain in the house forever, the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. These men to whom Jesus were was talking they held themselves to be children of the household of God. And Jesus is saying that they assumed privileges that weren't theirs because they didn't know the son. He's saying you're not sons. You're slaves. You're pretending. You're pretending to get the privileges of the children to be a true member of the household of God, you must know the eternal Son who remains forever. And when you know Him, you will be set free by Him. You'll notice in verse 37, he brings out another aspect of this spiritual slavery. He says, I know you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. And you could read the Greek there. My word finds no advance in you. My word makes no advance in you. And so this spiritual slavery is not only marked by unrepentant sin, but the fact that God... Make God's word makes no advance in hardened hearts. And we see that illustrated throughout this chapter. That's exactly what was happening. His word was making no advance in them. But friends, if you are in Christ this morning, I think there is a wonderful encouragement, a wonderful truth here that we would do well to remember and live in light of. Jesus says to us if you have believed in me, if you belong to me, then you are no longer slaves to sin. Do you believe that today? I think in our struggle with sin in this life, we find that very hard to believe. But Jesus assures us that you are not slaves of sin, that you are free indeed. Paul expressed the same thing in Romans 6, verse 6, when he says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Friends, you are free. You are no longer slaves to sin. And that means the Son. The Son is for you. He is on your side in your battle against sin. He wants to set you free. He wants you to know the joy of that freedom. J.C. Ryle wrote of this wonderful freedom that we have in Jesus. And he wrote this. They are freed from the guilt and consequences of sin by the blood of Christ. Justified, pardoned, forgiven, they can look forward boldly to the day of judgment and cry, who shall lay anything to our charge? Who is he that condemns? They are freed from the power of sin by the grace of Christ's Spirit. Sin has no longer dominion over them. Renewed, converted, sanctified, they mortify and tread down sin and are no longer led captive by it. Liberty like this is the portion of all true Christians in the day that they flee to Christ by faith and commit their souls to him. Liberty, like this, is the portion forevermore. Death cannot stop it. The grave cannot even hold their bodies for more than a little season. Those whom Christ makes free are free to all eternity. The sun has set you free. You are free. Indeed, he has freed us from slavery. He has brought us into his family. God is our loving father. Jesus is our elder brother. The Holy Spirit is our helper and comforter. And they are for us in our battle against sin. So Jesus frees us from that spiritual Slavery, But finally, we see this final expression of separation from God. And I may have made up a word here. Spiritual orphanhood. Spiritual orphanhood. In verses 37 and following, Jesus challenges them and he tells them that they are separated from God. And I want you to notice what their instinctive response is. Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. Now, I suppose the modern equivalent to this would be to say, well, I'm a church member. How do you know you're right with God? Well, I'm a church member. So when confronted with this question, how do you know that you're right with God? They essentially say, I I am a church member. But Abraham can't save anyone and the church can't save anyone as important as God's promises to Abraham were, and as important as the church is to our growth in grace, these are not ultimately what save us. Our hope must be in the Christ in whom Abraham trusted. Our hope must be in the Christ who died for the church. They kind of catch themselves. After Jesus confronts them, after they revile him and basically call him illegitimate, they do get around to saying, oh, yeah, yeah, God is our father. But Jesus says you're mistaken. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Again, going back to the fall and that first sin, when man was separated from God at the fall, Adam and Eve at the same time made themselves allies of Satan. That is why in Genesis 3.15, part of the gospel promise that God made was what? That he would put enmity... Between Satan and the woman. Enmity between her offspring and Satan's offspring. And we can often miss this, but those are words of salvation. Those are words of redemption. Because man was now orphaned from the family of God and made himself part of Satan's family. God would need to reverse that. Adam and Eve had essentially made the devil their father. And God was saying, I am reversing that. And I am again making you my children. And this is what is promised to us in the gospel. We are adopted into the family of God that when we trust in Christ, we become his brothers and his sisters. His father is our father. And Jesus, in a roundabout way, tells us how we can know this. How do we know that we really belong to him? He says, if, you, if God were your father, you would love me. The fact that we love Jesus is proof that we have been first loved by him and become part of his family. Friends, as we think about this tragic and far-reaching separation, and yet at the same time how Jesus is the remedy for that, does this not remind us of the, the desperate condition from which we were saved? As we see this fourfold expression of separation from God, it reminds us of what the gospel really is and what salvation really is. And I think at the same time, it confronts shallow, trivial American Christianity that presents the gospel in this shallow way that Jesus, well, he'll save you from an unfulfilling relationship, an unfulfilling job, or what, whatever it might be. And friends, that cheapens the gospel. Jesus, of course, can do those things. But it loses sight of the glory of the gospel that Jesus has saved us from the darkness of death and hell by his own death. That he has saved us from that separation from God by himself. Enduring the separation that should have been yours and mine. That he has freed us from the slavery to sin and Satan that was surely ours without him. And he has set his undeserving love upon us. And he has made us part of the household of God. You see, to truly glory in the good news of the gospel, we can never avoid the bad news. It's only by contemplating this profound and far-reaching separation that we can truly comprehend the breadth and the depth of the love of God for sinners like us. Let's pray together. Lord, having heard these wondrous things out of your word, we pray that you would implant them deep within our hearts. We pray, Lord, that we would glory in the cross of Jesus Christ, that we would marvel at the grace and the mercy and the kindness that we have been shown by our great, great triune God. May God, forgive us for cheapening the gospel and forgetting what it is we have actually been saved from. As we begin a new week and go out into the world, we pray that you would equip us with this truth, that Jesus has freed us from sin, that we are no longer slaves, but we are sons as he is your son. May this all be to the glory of Jesus, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.